What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where each week we discuss an album and the canon of Roadrunner Records and how it informs music today. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters, and welcome to the Grammy-nominated podcast, Meet Meet. Well, we weren't nominated for a Grammy, but last week we had Spineshank who were, and there's an exclusive Patreon episode with Stevis from Fever333, and they were too. So head over to patreon.com slash meetmeetpod to check it out and support the show. But today begins Death Metal December, and we're kicking it off with the Godfathers who are so death metal, they named their band as such, Death. Death was a seminal band spearheaded by mastermind Chuck Schuldiner, who tragically died young 19 years ago this week in 2001. But before he left us, we were blessed with various records, each made with a different cast of characters, and we're going to talk about their sole release on Roadrunner, and in my opinion, their ultimate masterpiece, Symbolic. We'll hear about making this album from Kelly Conlon, who played bass on it. But first, I talk with Matt Fox of Shia Lude as fans of this immaculate collection. Matt shares a lot of parallels with Death. They're both from Florida. They both recorded at Morris Sound Studios. And they both are the creative forces behind a band that changes personnel regularly. I never got to see Death while they were still together, but Matt was there and shares his unique perspective on growing up with these tracks. I feel like Death and you have a lot of uh, parallels, and also I think it might be surprising to people, me included, that you're a fan of this death metal band just from Childhood's music. But sure, yeah, you're both from Florida. Yeah, you both are. You know, you and Chuck Schuldner both are sole members of a band that have a rotating cast of characters every album. That's uh, unfortunately true. And you both love the word misanthropy. Uh, yeah, clearly. <laughs> so does that come from death? Is that where you, I mean, I know that you're a well-scholared guy, so maybe you knew that word regardless, but the first time I ever heard misanthropy was on a Shihalud shirt, and I remember people that didn't know how to tie their own shoes saying that word a lot all the time when I was younger because Shihalud had put it into the vernacular, and I have never forgiven you for it. But I didn't get it from death. I, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know how the word came into my vocabulary, I'm I'm hardly well scowled, uh, schooled, uh, not by a long shot, but um, yeah, it wasn't from death because I. Well, no, it fits in the time frame. Hey, who knows? Maybe I could have gotten it from him. I don't know. It's possible. I don't think so, but because uh, we did our second album, we started writing lyrics for it um, around 1999. 
And the first lyric on the song that starts our second album is let this be my writ of misanthropy. And that does uh, correlate with the year. That's the same year and around the same time frame that I heard um, symbolic. So who knows? Maybe I stole it. Maybe I'm revealing something to you about yourself right now that you didn't even know. You're my hypnotist. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> were, were you a fan of death before symbolic? Yeah, I was a fan of death since I first heard them as a teenage metalhead. I guess um, Scream Bloody Gore came out in 1987. And as a, you know, a big Metallica and Slayer guy, my friend said, you got to hear this, this uh, a band called Death, which is absolutely crazy that, you know, somebody went that route and said, let's just call it Death. <laughs> you know, that's what it is. And the artwork for Scream Bloody Gore was the goriest that I had ever seen as a 13 or 14 year old. Uh, so yeah, I, I was an instant fan from Scream Bloody Gore. Shortly after when Leprosy came out, that became my favorite album. And, and if I had to pick a favorite, it would be Leprosy because that, that one just defines, is one of the records that define my youth. But yeah, so to answer your question directly, I, I've been a fan of death since I first heard of them when Scream Bloody Gore came out. And you think Leprosy is your favorite because of like the time and place that you heard it kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, I, when, I, when I heard Scream Bloody Gore, I, I, I didn't own the tape. That's what we had back then was tapes. Um, so I would just go to my friend's house to hear it. So I never got, I mean, I'm familiar with it now, but I wasn't familiar with it growing up. Uh, but I remember when my friend, uh, one of my friends said, hey, I got this band. They're called Death Leprosy. I thought they were making fun of Death Leopard. You know, I thought it was like a <laughs> Death Leopard parody band, Death Leprosy. And I, I, I remember saying, oh, that's funny. I got to see this. And he shows me the tape. I'm like, no, it's that's death. This is their, their new album. Um, but yeah, so I went out and bought Leprosy. And that became like I said, one of the records that just defined my youth. And it's the, it's the up there with symbolic. It's probably the record that I listened to the most. Uh, so yeah, leprosy would have to be my, my favorite by default, but I do think symbolic is their best. Sure. Despite leprosy being my favorite. Yeah. I, I often have a difference in opinion of my favorite and what I think is the best of any band, really because of, the romance that you're talking about that you have with sure. an album when it comes out and when you when you first hear it death for me i always thought of them as like like when i first heard about metallica right i was like they're such the definition of metal that they put the word in their name like this is what metal is sure and death for me was the same thing i was like there's so much death metal they were just like well that's the name of it we're death see the funny thing is yeah well you're right but um, the funny thing is, I didn't hear of anything called death metal until I, I think the first record that I ever heard that was called death metal was the first Deicide record. Uh, and my friends introduced that to me as death, uh, as death metal. But when I heard Scream Bloody Gore, um, it was still thrash to me. And when I talked to some of my friends who were a little younger than me, when I talk to them, they, they, they refer to death as death metal, which makes perfect sense. I get it. But to me, it's still thrash. So even living in Florida, where all those Florida death metal bands are blowing up, you weren't uh, aware of like Deicide or Obituary? Well, you said Deicide was the first one that you were aware of. but Yeah, I got, I got out of metal. You know, I was a young kid and I found hardcore. 
you know, around 16, 17, 18, those years, um, you know, going from Metallica to Misfits to Nuclear Assault, you know, from there, I Stormtroopers of Death, and then I veered into, you know, the more that I was in the crossover stuff, and then I veered into Circle Jerks, Dead Kennedys, and by the time I started getting into that stuff, I was, you know, I was too cool for metal. Uh, <laughs> So I didn't, that's why I didn't hear Symbolic when it came out. I missed Entombed. I missed Obituary. But a lot of the metal bands that came out in the 90s, I missed until I went and revisited all that stuff, probably starting around 1999. When, you know, because I was so, so deep into all the hardcore and punk, you know, the Revelation stuff. And then, of course, the early Victory stuff. But yeah, it took me until 1999 to go back and miss the metal that I had missed for the past, like, you know, five, six, seven years. Well, also being in Florida, you know, it's easy for me to be like, oh, you didn't have all those Florida death metal bands, but the Florida hardcore scene was explosive. So you had plenty to keep you busy and occupied without knowing about death metal, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I I did not know about death metal. Not not until the first Deicide record came out. My, My friend said, yeah, this is death metal. Huh, I don't like it. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, the, it's interesting about that to kind of even contradict myself is I think one of the first death metal bands I was ever presented was Death. Same with when I was a youth, one of the first metal bands I ever heard was Metallica. So I think that that's what I thought death metal was. But when I think of it now, I understand and know why bands like Obituary, Deicide, and death or death metal but to me obituary always had that kind of hardcore crossover so i never considered it purely death metal deicide uh has like almost like a (laughs) i'm just thinking about you going oh i don't like it uh deicide has kind of a more like punk aesthetic all the songs are a lot shorter and the kind of faster and death has you know it's like thrash it's crossover it's got that melodic thing when i really think of like death metal and also going in the the roadrunner can and i think of like suffocation they have the illegible logo there's no like breakdown you know there's like heavy parts and stuff like that the blast beats are constant like it's to me when i think of death metal like what the sound is that's what it is versus these other bands kind of have so much more going on yeah sure and i missed i missed all that i missed suffocation my friends try to get me into suffocation now. We, we, uh, Shia Lude played with them uh, a few years back and they were awesome live. The guys were super cool. And for the record, I do like Deicide now. I hated it in 1990 uh-huh. when I think the first album came out, roughly around there. Um, I hated it, uh, but I got into them when they put out Once Upon the Cross. Uh, That's the one that I got into them with too. That's where I was yeah. like, okay, this is actually pretty cool. I don't know if you know the story and I don't want to sidetrack too much, which is what I do. Um, but when we, we went to record our first album, Hearts Once Nourished at Morris Sound, and apparently Glenn Benton was there and was opened the door for us and was very welcoming, helped us get into the studio. And one of the, one of my guys says, yeah, that's Glenn Benton from Deicide. I said, you know, I, I'm not familiar with Deicide. And they said, well, you would know. He's got the cross burned <laughs> on his forehead. And I, I didn't see it myself. But apparently he was there and was very, very nice to us. But, you know, they were in Studio A and we were like Studio Z twice removed. <laughs> you know, what, you know the smallest studio that there was in the, in the building. Um, with the, the singer and guitar player of Asuk, Steve Heritage. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. He, he, uh, 
engineered the record. He was a great, great guy. Yeah, well, Death, a band like Death and Megadeth, for that matter, were lucky in that the singer was the main guy. So the you always had the voice. The struggle we always had with Shai Halud is that I'm not the voice, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I'm not the, the, the screaming voice. So it's always, that's why we've gotten, I think, more crap than other bands. Like, like I said, like Death and Megadeth, who were lucky enough to just replace drummers and guitar players and bass players. But unfortunately with us, we kept one guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> well, not only that, but you have that, uh, that legacy of Chad being the, you know, first vocalist. I know that Damien was the first, but, you know, when you were kind of making your mark, you had this guy that went on to be famous and popular so you have that and then so people focus so much on him not being the vocalist and then in addition to that there's a different vocal but i get what you're saying it's the face of the band that's different every time versus if it was anyone else no one would probably even notice because no one cares yeah yeah so we weren't as lucky as death (laughs) In, in a lot of ways well chuck famously is you know impossible to work with and that's why he has all these people changing out so is that also why you have uh, all these different member changes well i'm sure people would tell you that <laughs> um i would you know beg to differ there are people that have been behind the scenes or have filled in on tours uh but were never in the band that are in the band now so you know i've got a history with uh a, a decent amount of people who will tell you, no, Matt Fox is not nearly impossible to work with. But if you find some of the members that, you know, we had trouble with, of course, that's going to come up. Unfortunately, it, it hurts my feelings to say I hate the fact that somebody thinks that, but you're going to get it if you're, if, if you were, you know, the main guy in a band and you're teaching people like, just like Chuck, I guess, not to say that I'm on his level by any means, but when it's your music and you're teaching it to other people and you need it played this certain way, I guess you're going to get that kind of criticism. I think what's interesting about Chuck specifically, musically from everyone I've talked to that records with them, played in the band with them, as far as the music goes, he actually wasn't as much of a dictator as I probably just assumed he was based on the history. So I think that's interesting because I would have assumed that it would be the other way around. You know, I thought that when I talked to these guys, they'd be like, yeah, you know, I didn't get to play my own bass parts. He kind of told me what I had to do or, you know, the solos were all his, but he actually was a, a great collaborator musically, just a, any sort of business relationship seemed to go south for him. Well, within Shailud, I, I, if we're learning old stuff, I always tell, you know, if it's a guitar player or a drummer, yeah, do it, you know, put you into it. You know, please keep the structure of the song, but if you want to do a flourish where there's no flourishes or you don't like this fill and you have better fills, by all means, make it yours because that's that's just going to help me in the long run if somebody feels like, you know, they can take the songs and make them theirs. So I'd like to think that I'm very collaborative, but, you know, like we just discussed with Chuck, um, when you still when you're in that position, you're going to get that kind of criticism. Personally, I think I get along with uh, people fine. Uh, I'm definitely picky. And I I think certain character traits rub me the wrong way. And if somebody has those character traits, not that I'm nasty to them or anything, 
but I think that I don't feel close to a lot of people. I never thought I would be the kind of guy to have, like, I, I hate to use the word, but quote unquote enemies. You know what I mean? Because who, who has enemies really? But uh, being in a band, you definitely make some. Yeah, I guess that just comes with the competitive nature of it too. You know, it's things sure. that uh, you can't avoid. But another thing that you and Death have parallels with is that all of the lineups that I'm familiar with at least are like extremely proficient musicians. Like you, you get some extremely talented people to, uh, to back you up on these songs that you write. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, so I've been told, not that I think so, but I've been told some of the music is hard to process and to play. I, I compared to death and not by a long shot. <laughs> um, I, I think our, I don't think our stuff is that complicated really, but um, the people that have gelled with the music the best are, are, are people who tend to be better musicians than I am. I mean, I, I would say by a long shot, I, right now I'm the worst in <laughs> our, our other guitar player. Mark is, is, is a stellar player. Uh, the bass player, Eric, that we have now uh, with all respect to Matt Fletcher, who's still a part, he's a part of the community. But um, Eric, the guy that we have now taking over for him, uh, isn't even a really a bass player, doesn't consider himself a musician at all, but he, he plays beautifully. Uh, our drummer Mo is killer, and Jay, who uh, plays bass and end, and is also was the singer for Reign Supreme. Oh, you know, Pepito. We, yeah, Jay Pepito. He's done, uh, we've only done two shows with him. We had some shows this year, but that didn't happen. But uh, Jay's extremely talented and proficient at what he does. So yeah, we've got a really, really, really solid lineup now, which I'm very happy about. And I can't wait for shows to happen again. Oh, I had no idea that Jay was in the band. That's incredible. Yeah, well, um, one little uh, further story about Jay, which I, I neglected to mention. Um, you know, we'd been talking about him singing for the band for a while. But after Hulu did its last tour, which is over four years ago now in Japan was our last show. Um, I, I was <clears throat> very burnt out and I, I took, um, without stating it publicly, there was definitely a halud hiatus where, you know, I didn't pick up my guitar. I probably didn't pick up my guitar for a good two years. Um, I was just, you know, let me get out of this. It was just too much. Um, you know, tour after tour, lineup after lineup, you know, too many problems. Um, but yeah, so during my hiatus, I got a text message, an ominous text message from Jay that just said, it's time. <laughs> and that was the spark that, that got everything going like, okay, fuck motherfucker. It's it's time. Let's go. So, but then COVID happened, you know, we, we had furnace fest this year. We had, Manchester Punk Fest in England uh, that was supposed to be early in the year and a few dates in Germany and such. Uh, really, really lame. We were looking forward to those shows. I think they announced today the new Furnace Fest dates. Are you going to be a part yeah. of that still? Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. um, that's currently the only date that we have um, booked for next year. Hopefully we'll get something. But uh, yeah, that's that's the story about how the members came to be and where we are now, kind of.
So, Symbolic is my favorite Death album. And I think okay. the reason for that is because of how melodic it is and how catchy a lot of the songs are. Extremely catchy. Normally, I don't like longer songs, which this album has lengthier tracks than a lot of their albums do. Sure. But I think that the fact that it does come back to a lot of these choruses or at least memorable instrumental hooks, even if they're not vocal hooks, really gives me something to latch on to. You know, the title track of him saying symbolic acts is something that I can remember. And, you know, anytime you can... Uh, attach yourself with a vocal or something like that even if i don't know what a the symbolic acts are that he's doing i yeah i can feel connected to the song more is there a song on here in particular that you kind of immediately took to um well when i first heard it in 1999 that main riff from symbolic the first song you know as soon as i heard it i was i said whoa this is death this is great probably before the vocals even kicked in i just you know it's such a a simple catchy riff so i i was caught immediately by that i, I got into death symbolic by our then singer a european guy named geert and um you know when he found out that i wasn't like an older metalhead, he says oh you know did you ever listen to symbolic i said no so as soon as he put it on i was captured by the very first song these days there's I, I usually can't get the the one riff out of empty words out of my head. I, I find myself like I'll be sleeping and then I'll wake up. I swear this happens. I, I wake up and my legs are like kicking to this riff in empty words. Of course, Symbolic and Crystal Mountain, everyone's going to say obvious choices. Those are in my head all the time. And also, I really love um, A Thousand Eyes. So A Thousand Eyes is about, uh, in Florida, around 94, 95, there was a spike in crime rate, specifically in Orlando. So at the time, they were trying to pass legislation where they were going to install cameras throughout the city to be able to kind of keep an eye on the crime rate. So A Thousand Eyes oh. refers to the, the cameras, you know, the A Thousand Eyes of the law. Living in the pupil of A Thousand Eyes. Right, right. Yeah, great song. Uh, cool lyrics, cool ideas. I, I had no idea what it was about. I thought it was about some 1,000-eyed monster. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> That's what you would think. That's what I thought about Crystal Mountain, that it was about, like, uh, you know, some sort of, like, Lord of the Rings type That's of thing. That's what I still think. But uh, apparently Where Chuck... Where takes its form. <laughs> so uh, Chuck had some neighbors that were very, uh, very religious, and so the Crystal Mountain kind of refers to their little bubble that they would keep themselves in because they wouldn't interact with other people that weren't very devout uh, practices oh. of their religion. And it, it turned out that they were, in fact, you know, pretty terrible people themselves. But you, you, they stayed insular, which is pretty common in any sort of religion, any sort of group of people in general. So Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, well, this, this sounds like a more mature Chuck for sure. Uh, his lyrics started, from what I can tell, started getting more topical around human. Or maybe even a little bit on spiritual healing, but spiritual healing was still a young Chuck. Right, right. And human is so like, he's very angry on that one too. Vocally even, he sounds more like aggressive and hateful. Well, than, he, uh, yeah, he, hasn't, he hadn't switched to the higher register yet. Which is interesting in general to me for him because I don't know if you've ever seen interviews with him or anything like that, but he comes off like this like chill surfer dude and he's not like death metal guy. Well, we joke around because uh, we saw, my, my friends and I, all my metal friends when we were teenagers, we saw death 
on tour with Death Angel and Dark Angel. (laughs) Death Angel, Dark Angel, and Death. And I remember I met Dean Hoagland once, and uh, I mentioned that I saw them on that tour, and he even remembered the date, that it was the guitar player for Death Angel's birthday, that show. We'd never, back then, there was no YouTube. This is in the, you know, late 80s. Um, So we had no idea what Chuck would sound like. But in between songs, you know, he's like, thank you, thank you. (laughs) You know, we had no idea what to expect, but we didn't expect a, a, a pleasant sounding person to be talking to the audience in that manner. But then again, he did at that show. Do you know who the great cat is? Intimately. Oh, okay. Because guess what? What? Roadrunner Records. Roadrunner Records? Yeah. Okay, well, he had, but Chuck apparently didn't like her because he had, he brought a Great Cat record on stage. He called her a bitch, and he he broke the record on stage. Dang. You think it was a a scorned lover? And Gene Hoagland played drums for Fear Factory. Oh, did I had no idea. He was on, obviously, in Dark Angel on that tour. Um, and then obviously later in death. So, you know, another tie back to death and Roadrunner. There's also a acoustic guitar on Perennial Quest, which is kind of a unique thing. Yeah, sure. What did you think about that when you first heard it? Were you like, ah, this isn't the death that I know and love? Or you were like, oh, this no, is sick. I, I fell in I fell in love with Symbolic the minute I heard it. There's nothing on that album I dislike. I, I think it's easily their best record. Originally also supposed to be their last record. When he wrote it and recorded it, it was deemed yeah, to be so the final. Yeah, Yeah. And then he uh, got kind of swindled into doing another album under the death name, but I guess he really wanted to do that uh, Control Denied album. And he want, whoever he signed with was like, well, we got to get something out of this death name first, so you need to put out another death record, and then we'll do your other thing. I've listened to Control Denied maybe once or twice. I should probably give it another listen. Apparently, originally pitched to Dio to be the vocalist, and he turned it down. Wow. Now that's something that would have been killer. Right, yeah. Wow. I would have loved a, a Schuldner-Dio collaboration. In sure. Ten- Which makes me wonder, too, was it that he just wasn't into the music or didn't want to work with Chuck, you know, because I, I don't know him intimately, but based on... You know, Dio probably is familiar with at least somebody out of the 30 people that played with him that would be like, you know what, maybe this isn't good to do. Misanthrope okay. has that very interesting, like, bouncy riff to it that I love. And I think that's very ahead of its time. And, you know, obviously they didn't uh, do a whole lot with that, but that. It's very, like, I guess what maybe some people would call groove metal, but not yeah. uh, something that they really did ever before or after that. Right. Yeah, you, you've never heard Death with a riff like that before. But they had a lot of... That's why, I think that's why I love Symbolic so much. It's got... And I, I don't want to be lynched for saying this, but it's got a lot of... It's got some pop sensibility to it. You know? Uh, which is what makes it so catchy, I think. Yeah. Yeah, great song. I think the interesting and cool thing about Symbolic is it has... A lot of catchiness to it, the pop sensibilities as far as choruses and things like that, hooks, whether they be musical or lyrical. It has a lot of things that you didn't see Death do before, but none of them feel weird that they're doing them. The acoustic guitar and perennial quest, you're, you know, it's not like jarring. You're like, oh, this fits perfectly into this song. This riff and this anthrope totally makes sense. The evolution of Death 
human was the transition into more progressive death metal, I guess. But he, what helped death, I think, get to symbolic was the fact that he still had the really, as we discussed, the really heavy voice on human. So everything evolved into symbolic very nicely for them. Do you feel like death is more popular now than they ever were during their active iteration? I don't. I, 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 I think that when they were... See, I was so out of metal around the time that Symbolic came out. So I don't know how they were at that point. But when I saw them with Dark Angel and uh, Death Angel, it was, I mean, it was a sold out show. So uh, I think they had their height. They're more revered than I ever thought they would be, um, if that makes sense. But I, I, I don't know that they're bigger now than they ever were. I mean, maybe they are, and I'm just unaware. No, that's why I'm asking. I'm genuinely asking because I didn't experience them in their heyday. So I just have hindsight. I just have seeing the logo all the time. But sure. that doesn't mean that if they, you know, that Death to All tour, I don't think it was playing, you know, arenas. No, definitely not. When, yeah, I, I would say that after Chuck died, you know, the, none of the fans dropped off. I mean, they've got their legacy and they've got a loyal following that will not go. So good for them, for sure. But uh, when I saw Death on that tour, I think it was 1988. I mean, it was a sold out show. And I mean, Death Angel and Dark Angel did well. Uh, I even bought a Dark Angel shirt that night. But um, Death was the band everyone was there to see, for sure. So they, they had a height. The death to all thing, first of all, is a, like a weird thing to me in the first place. Like you're going to have... Yeah, like who's, this, who's saying on that? Various people. They various people? Different uh, lineups and stuff like that. And uh, if uh, like Queen or something like that, where you can just kind of do like a, a tribute type album band with a different vocalist or something. Well, what, about, what about Death for All with Adam Lambert? I would go to Death to All for Adam with Adam Lambert. <laughs> I would too. Thanks to Matt Fox of Shia Lude for talking with me, and check out that new and improved lineup he described next September at Furnace Fest in Alabama, where there are no laws, but many raccoons. So that brings us to the main event. Kelly Conlon is a death metal mainstay whose skills were all over Monstrosity's In Dark Purity album, but before that he made a permanent mark on the music world with his contributions in death, on their symbolic record. Kelly walks me through that experience and tells me about the best four bucks he ever made. You know, leading into you joining the band and then just making that record. I know that you in particular kind of came in in the, in the middle of the recording of that album. So were you already, did you have a relationship with the members of Death at that time beforehand? No, just Bobby. Bobby and I were in a local scene playing with some local bands and, um, you know, he's a hot guitar player. So everybody knew about him and, um, we just, you know, grinding and carving out teeth, if you will, in the local scene. So that's, that's who I knew just Bobby. So you come into the recording process, the drum tracks are already done. So are the songs essentially, they're already, 
developed and built and you're just kind of uh, learning them and playing to what you hear? Yeah, pretty much. Um, Chuck still had rhythm tracks to finish up on some, not all, but some of them. He was uh, probably halfway through, I believe. I'm not sure. All the drums were done already. And um, I came in and just, you know, started learning them and, you know, writing some bass lines to, to them slowly but surely, you know. Did you have a lot of uh, freedom with what you could do with those bass lines as far as, you know, is there certain songs where he was like, hey, stick to the guitar or match up with Gene or anything specific that he was giving you notes on with doing that? No, it's not like he was a dictator or anything like that. I mean, he just, you know, go at it or something. And, um, you know, I made a different approach to it when I approached how the song, how I would write. I pretty much stuck to what Gene was doing. So if he's sitting there doing, you know, doubles and such, you know, I would do something with him, maybe some fills and such. But if there was uh, an area that might have stepped on a harmony or something with the guitars, you know, Jim Morris would say, hey, you know, let's hold back on that. Uh, Chuck's doing this or he's doing A or he's doing B here. So, but other than that, no one ever said, hey, you got to do this and do that. Nothing was like that. Was Gene still in the studio at the time since he had already finished his drum tracks? Um, sometimes, I think. I think sometimes. Yeah, I think sometimes, but not all the time. And when you were brought in to do this album, was it already established that you weren't going to tour for it? Or did you think that you were going to continue on and do more stuff with the band afterwards? Uh, contractually, yeah, was supposed to do a lot of other stuff. I only got to do the Full of Hate festivals. And there was supposed to be, you know, the U.S. tour, the world tour and everything, you know. So, yeah, there was supposed to be a whole lot more. It was, it was supposed to be uh, another uh, Headbangers Ball video, too. You know, that was actually in the contract as well, which I still have to this day. <laughs> so, there was supposed to be a whole lot more, but, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I got to do the Full of Hate festivals and met a lot of good, you know, good people, other bands on the, on the bill as well and learned a lot as well, too. Is there a specific reason why those things didn't get fulfilled that you had in this contract? Uh, just something silly. It was just something really, really silly. And still to this day, I've maybe let a few people know in close circles. And if they'd ever escaped, I know who it was. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was just something very silly. And um, unfortunately, you know, it's, it's, it's not my gig. You know, Chuck is the, the main, main guy. So, Were you a fan of Death before you joined the band? I mean, I, I feel like they're a lot more uh, celebrated now, you know, years later after they're no longer a band and Chuck no longer is with us versus, I mean, at the time, I'm sure they were a, a force in the death metal scene, but now they're, you know, that, that logo, the merchandising and everything is so, you know, uh, inescapable at this point. Absolutely. Um, I got introduced from some friends, um, Spiritual Healing, and everybody, yeah, obviously, you know that album, everybody loves that album. And uh, I got into them from that album, and thereafter, you know, once Human came out, I was like, holy shit, he's pissed off. But yeah, it all started <laughs> off with Spiritual Healing, and uh, I just thought it was great. The lyrics were great, you know, I just, it, everything had a lot of meaning to it. You mentioned him sounding pissed off, and I always find it's interesting with, if, you know, we think of these other Florida death metal bands like Deicide, like Glenn Benton seems like he's probably really <laughs> out sacrificing animals or something. The obituary <laughs> guys have this vibe that they're in the swamps. Uh, Chuck seems like such a, in interviews and things like that, like a, this laid back, almost like California surfer guy, but in the, <laughs> in the albums leading up to Symbolic, you know, obviously very uh, 
hateful sounding, but even Symbolic doesn't have as much uh, vitriol and, and anger in it. Uh, was he a, a pretty easygoing guy to be around or was he, uh, d did he seem disturbed to you? I don't know how to better phrase that question. No, not really. And it's funny you say that surfer guy, because I, when I first met him, I actually met him at a Merciful Fate concert before individual thought patterns came out. And uh, I asked them then, I was like, hey, Chuck, what's up, you know? And um, I asked if he needed a bass player then. And uh, later on, when got in a band, I, I reminded him about that. He kind of laughed about it. But uh, no, I mean, he's, it, I thought he was kind of a surfer guy too, you know, surfing the waves. But no, laid back, laid back person. Um, definitely had insight of, you know, his direction, what he wanted things to be. And, you know, he, he was definitely focused on, on his craft. But no, no sacrifice in anything. He loved animals. He loved his dogs. And, you know. Yeah, I just was always kind of taken aback by because I was so wrapped up in the imagery and everything of death before I ever really ever saw interviews with him or heard him speak or anything. And even in the live setting and live videos and stuff, of course, he's playing and screaming. So you don't really get a, a good grasp of maybe the kind of person he is. But then when I see him talking these older interviews it just seems like he was so uh like he seems like the the sea turtle from finding nemo he's just like really <laughs> you know what's funny real quick about that uh about obituary uh, years ago a, a buddy of mine mike and, and we were in we were in orlando and we won tickets to see obituary and it was like this thing on a phone, you know, call up, you could go see obituary St. Pete theater or some shit like that. The guy, the guy starts talking about, yeah, what do they do? Like obituary, what do they throw out raw meat or something? And there's, you know, kill it. My, he, he still has the, the, um, the recording of that radio station somewhere, but it was funny. Cause they're like, what do they do? Throw out raw meat and just all this misconception of stuff. You know, not like wasp back in the day, throwing out raw <laughs> meat. Yeah. So, I mean, you had all these, bands that were part of that same scene were you see you were orlando or florida based at the time of this album i was yeah working with jim morris you know you got to record at morris sound studios did you ever record there before or after that uh yeah yeah did a monstrosity album first we did uh, millennium there with scott burns and then we did in dark, i did it in dark purity uh we just got off Got off the got off a uh, six week tour in Europe, and then I think we played with Deicide at St. Pete Theater on uh, Friday. I had Saturday Sunday off, and then I was straight into the studio for two twelve hour sessions Monday and Tuesday with Jim Morris to do in Dark Purity. So that was kind of cool because my chops were on fire. We were you know we just played six week tour, you know, in Europe and. That was it, was, it was a lot of fun. So, yeah. So, I, I got to record there a few times. Great studio. It was a great studio, you know. So, working with Scott Burns and working with Jim Morris, who both producers worked with Death, of course, you just worked with Jim on with Death specifically. What do you think their different approaches were to producing? Because Jim's kind of more hands on approach, not that Scott's not known for being hands on, but Jim's production is, a, is cited as, you know, a big reason why the symbolic album is so much more like lush with the different landscapes and things like that. What did you see as like an, a specific difference between working with both of them? Both great producers. Uh, yeah, both great producers. Uh, you can't take anything from any of those guys. Those guys are legendary, you know, especially in the death metal scene. Um, I can't really speak for any of them uh, as far as what their thoughts are, but I, 
you know, maybe uh, at the end, Scott was just getting tired. His ears were getting tired. So many, so many death metal albums and such. But uh, Jim was a fresh approach and uh, came uh, came at it different angles. And you know, he really—I don't know—it's it's just both both of them were really great to work with. I uh, just can't take anything away. You know, one guy likes salt and pepper and one guy likes, you know, cayenne and garlic. You know, it's <laughs> different spices here and sure. there. In the liner notes of Symbolic, you say to Jim that you've got four bucks. <laughs> You're the first person who said something about that. What does that mean? <laughs> oh, that is so funny. Wow. You're the first person who ever asked that. And you, this will be the first time I ever talk about that because nobody has ever, you know, actually read the line of notes and said, <laughs> hey, what does this mean here? Oh, wow. It's funny. We, uh, Chuck, Jim, and myself, we were, we were going somewhere to eat or something. And we're at a stoplight. And <laughs> I saw some money outside. I said, stop, wait, wait, let me get out. So I got out of the car and I grabbed up this money. I didn't know if it was hundreds or whatever, right? And I got it. I got in the car. I was like, Jim, I got $4. <laughs> <laughs> That's as simple as that. I found $4 in the middle of the street wearing a road, you know, highway, whatever, stoplight. But yeah, it, that's exactly what that is. That's funny. You you really asked that. That's funny. That's that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> is that just something you guys would bring up to each other all the time after that? No, it's just one of those things. You know, <laughs> okay. you you know when you get ready to put your thank you notes and such. You know, after every album, you kind of think about the process you went through with people that were there, and you know, you thank them for this or that, or you know, so. Roadrunner, this being the only album that Death did on Roadrunner, did you feel, I know that you, again, kind of come in the middle of it, but that doesn't mean you wouldn't have seen this, so I don't know why I'm giving a disclaimer for it. Did you feel like they had any sort of involvement with it? Was Monty Connor involved in, like, you know, checking in on the recording process or anything like that while this album's being made? Or they just kind of let you guys do what you needed to do because they probably trusted, you know, the, the established brand already? Well, um, I do know that he did check in, you know, here and there on certain things. And at the time, Machine Head was was out or coming out as well. And, you know, he kind of hinted at like, hey, I like that guitar sound to Chuck. And Chuck's like, no, I like my sound better. You know, <laughs> I forgot which Marshalls he had the Valve State ones. But, yeah, it's out there somewhere. But, you know, he did say something about Chuck's guitar tone compared to you know to burn my eyes album and chuck's like that's not my tone my tone is this so that i do remember oh that's interesting yeah especially since the burn my eyes tone is so often compared to like a uh, a dime bag tone so that even you know just thinking about chuck playing like a pantera riff sounds like goofy to me if i'm trying to imagine right. it one of the more remembered or revered songs on this album is crystal mountain but a you know a, a centerpiece of that particular song is the bass line. So do you remember anything particular about first hearing that song? Because again, you know the song's kind of already written when you're first uh, getting to approach it, where you were really gonna be able to explore things on that, or you know, like you mentioned, is Chuck and Jim kind of pointing things out, like oh maybe go with this or that. Any anything about that song specific that you remember thinking, oh this is gonna be my moment to kind of shine here? Um, no, not really. I mean. Luckily, my chops were, I was in the woodshed for a long time and playing with local bands. Uh, so my chops are on fire and, you know, I went in confident. I just was, it was a new thing. And um, most of the um, 
songs that I would make bass lines for, I was put up in a hotel for like two weeks and I had a, a little boom box. Kids don't know what that is nowadays. <laughs> I would hit play and record, uh, rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind, and listen to what's going on, learn the tracks, and then try to come up with something, as I said earlier, you know, with, with Gene's, you know, master plan and try to, you know, add to some little, you know, touches to what he's doing and stay with them rhythmically. Um, and, you know, simple but yet tasteful you know just put a little nice little shine on what gene was doing while he's doing his symbol work nothing crazy i mean i could have i could have got gone on there and just do do, 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 do. but uh, you know i really want to you know lock in there rhythmically you know you, you grow up reading all these books guitar for the practicing musician and all the stuff that they don't even have anymore you know, how to approach with your first professional, you know, recording and such. So I was just trying to, you know, kind of keep it simple yet tasteful for my style. Now you do go a little nuts on Sacred Serenity, though. That one's got the crazy That's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. <clears throat> that's, that's, uh, that's always been a fun song to play. Um, never played it live. Never played it live. I don't think he's even played it live. But uh, lots of fun. That song's a lot of fun. A lot of people like that song, too. So you mentioned you got to do some of the festivals with Death. I didn't know that you got to play any live shows with Death, so that's pretty cool. Were you playing songs from before Symbolic when you did these shows? Yeah, yeah. We played um, um, one show, Warm Up, in Florida, um, a place called the Fairbanks Inn, and it was a, it was a, um, we were doing like a rescue thing for the local dog shelter charity charity that's the word i'm looking for <laughs> uh, but we were doing a charity and we had a bunch of bands acid bath opened up too uh-huh. so it was nice to see those guys but uh yeah we had the whole set we had a, um a few songs from symbolic that we played i think we opened up with uh spiritual healing that's the song we opened up with that was a good song to open up with um and of course all the other hits that went along you know with the back catalog I have, you know i do have a list uh a song list from the one of the first shows we played in Europe, and that was at the Paradiso in Amsterdam. Is there anything that you would have done differently listening back to this album? Not anything that you regret necessarily, but when, you know, I feel like any musician, when they listen to any body of work that they've produced, they go back and they're like, oh, you know what? Now in retrospect, maybe I would have done this or tweaked to this or something like that. Anything that sticks out? You know, nothing really, you know, because life is full of learning new things anyway and as you go i wouldn't change anything ever because what you learn through life will as long as you learn you you get stronger anyway so i wouldn't change anything at all you know i had a good time um it's a great time in my life uh obviously who wouldn't want you know that gig you know especially uh with the players that were in the band just had a great time doing it wouldn't change a thing the album cover by Renee Millville, when you first, did you see that before the album was done being recorded? Like, cause that thing is crazy. Like when you first saw that, what was your reaction to death? Of course has legendary artwork, but symbolic is my favorite death album across the board, artwork, nice. sonically songs, everything. But did you have any sort of immediate reaction to that when you first saw that? Not really. And you know what? That original painting sold for 10,100 bucks. 
What? Renee, damaged. We were, n- damaged, no less. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I first saw it, I was... I was taken back because I thought it was going to be something gory, you know, like some of the other ones or, you know, a preacher, ah, you know, and um, I was like, wow, this is, it was, it was wild because it was hanging up. Um, and then Chuck started explaining everything about the hands and everything about it, the eye. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty intense. Um, and I got it, you know, because it goes with all the songs that, you know, he put together. So it was, uh, yeah, it was something else. Well, when you say symbolic bass, you mean the bass you played on symbolic or you have one with like the artwork painted on it? No, with that, with that recording, that particular bass that I did, it's inside the, uh, the Metal Crusade, the fan club. You see me there sitting there warming up, uh, a picture of me warming up. But yeah, that bass, uh, I, I call the bass, that bass the wife. It's, it's been through a lot. It's been through hell. The case is held together by duct tape and gorilla tape. And uh, yeah, I think uh, it's got its scars, battle scars throughout the years. Let's see, 920. It's probably a 32-year-old bass. Yeah, because I mean, the album being 25 years old. So I mean, you probably had it for a while before then. So that's, yeah, that's pretty You know busy. what? That, yeah, it's probably 32 years because I started playing bass just seven years before i got signed with death oh wow i just stayed in my my house go to work come home and i just played you know all day up to eight hours no less than four and just got my chops up that's i mean it paid off you got to be in one of the premier (laughs) death metal bands of all time so (laughs) and i'm very thankful for it you know i never take anything for granted so being someone who was aware of death beforehand you may have a little bit of bias, but like I said, Symbolic's my favorite Death album. But where does Death or where does Symbolic fall in the legacy of Death for you? Um, uh, it's a, it is a, it was a great album. It's fun to do. It's definitely have my my uh, thoughts about that album. Um, I love Spiritual Healing. It's a great album. And when Human came out, that just that just took took it like to the next level. You know, it just seemed like he was because he was talking about relativity. You know, that sublease label from when he was on. Um, and I remember reading in like a local GM magazine in Orlando, he was talking about you know, how much money they owed him. And it just seemed when that album came out that he was just pissed and he really focused and directed his attention towards these riffs that were just, you know, just pound you, you know, just knocked you over. And, and Humans, one of those albums. It's a great album. And of course, Sean, you know, late great Sean Reinhardt. You know, everybody's like, oh, wow, listen to that. You know, it's just, just trucking down there, playing his drums like a madman. You know? And, of course, Steve, you know, can't take from him. Paul, great musicians, all of those guys. That's a great album. So I I think, I, you know, obviously I can say, hey, I love Symbolic too. But, <laughs> you know, to, to take the second, second place, I would say, you know, it's a hand-in-hand hand with – spiritual and human i mean that's the cool thing about death too is that they all sound like well it's crazy that they all sound like the same band despite (laughs) each album is like a different group of people but uh also you know they sound like completely different vibes i mean symbolic is so melodic and has a lot more almost like hooks in the songs you know there's a lot of catchy choruses and and verses and things like that whereas like you said some of the earlier albums are just aggressive and, and floor you and kind of almost more what you would think of as a death metal album. Symbolic almost kind of plays with veering off into just like a 
a traditional metal album in a good way though. I think it makes it more accessible, which is probably why it's my favorite because it wasn't something that I had to ease myself into. I was immediately, you know, taken a hold of by songs like um, Crystal Mountain and things like that. Yeah. And, and, you know, th that album, when we first got to have a listening party with just the band, after it got mixed, me, Bobby, Chuck, and I think Gene was, I think Gene might've went back to California at the time, but we're at Chuck's house just listening to it. And, um, you know, all the little harmonies come out, all this little, I was like, wow, that's cool. He's like, didn't know they were going to be there. So all the other guitar fills and stuff that was delayed on top, you're like, wow, that's fucking awesome. You know, that's kick ass. Um, the bass was a little low in the mix on the first set of mix. And I remember Bobby, I said, it's kind of low, I really don't hear myself, you know. And Bobby's like, well, well you should say something, you know, just either he'll make it you know, have Jim uh, bring it up a little bit or, or he won't. I mean, it doesn't hurt. I'm like, yeah, I guess. So, you know, I said it's a little low and whatnot, but they brought it up a little bit and uh, yeah, you could hear it, you know, but yeah, all the layering throughout the songs or little harmonies or the little, you know, little solo stuff that he added on it really brought that album out. You know, we were impressed for sure. What is your most fond memory of making this album in this period of your life? Well, it was, uh, it was my first opportunity. So, you know, that was a big deal and eternal thanks to Chuck for that, of course, but the learning experience of being in a real, you know, professional studio was, was, you know, that's a, that's a big part. You, you, you play for years thinking you're going to play in a big, you know, big studio, big, huge SSL board. You're like, Oh my goodness. You know, um, but everything about it was a was a great experience, you know. Even having having a break, eating hot wings. Chuck and I eating the hottest wings, and people walking by and go, "Ah, oh, my eyes are burning," you know. Just those little things, you know. I, I have a journal I wrote of things throughout, you know, even on a road and such. But yeah, all that's all a good learning experience and things you learn in life. Yeah, you know, different steps and such make you who you are. But yeah, that was a great learning experience great studio great band and you know first time i i get a chance to you know make a nice professional album my first professional album you know which is good so i'm still fortunate to play people still dig what i do i mean i haven't stopped playing and i don't think most of my friends my you know my age and my era we don't stop playing we just continue to play sitting our blood i've been a musician for 42 years now so it music's very emotional you know it could be happy it could be sad whichever, melancholy, uh, spherical, whatever you want. But you, you come home after a rough day or whatever, you pick up your guitar, your bass, just you play, you just get the, everything out, you know. It always comes through, through music. Thanks to Kelly for those symbolic facts about symbolic acts. He's still an active member of the metal community who you can reach at kellyconlin.net and bug him on Instagram at kellyconlinbase to post more classic death photos because he's got spools of films locked in the vaults. Next week, Death Metal December continues with Long Island Juggernaut's Suffocation. So while you hold your breath, go on to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review and follow Meet Meat Pod on Instagram for all the latest and greatest I'm Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meep, and yes, that's the best I could come up with. Bye! <laughs>